A verse just came into my mind, so I'm going to say it. Uh, but it says, Neither eye nor ear, ear or mind can comprehend the things that the Lord has prepared for you. You guys remember that verse? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so just remember that verse. That's all I'll say right now. It's gonna, we'll come back to a reference later, but if I wouldn't have said it right now, I would have totally forgot it, and the Spirit would have been like, come on, Sean. I gave you something, you didn't say it. So there you go. We'll, we'll talk about that later. So today's Bible study is called King and Priest, and so we're in Zechariah chapter 6, and we're starting in verse 9. So it says, When the word of the Lord came to me, saying, uh, Receive the gift from the captives, from Heldai and Tobijah and Jediah. I don't know how to say those names. Jediah. Do you know what Jediah? Well, that's Jediah. He's Jediah. This is Jediah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a different one. So these guys, these, this uh, Hel, Tob, and Jed, we'll call them that, <laughs> have, who have come from Babylon, and go, uh, and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, and take the silver and gold and make an elaborate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. I love these names, but I hate them. Okay, so we have ended our, our time in this book of looking at all the visions. So the visions have ceased, and so now this is not a vision anymore. This is prophecy. This is something that's going to happen. So he says, hey, Zechariah, there's going to be some guys that are going to be coming from Babylon, and they're going to have some gifts for you. And I have something special planned for these gifts. And that's why I think that's pretty cool. You know, so Zechariah, he's going to know, he's going to be expecting when these three guys come rolling all in. He's like, you got something for me? And they're going to be like, uh, yes, I do. You know, in fact, I was, maybe they were waffling in their minds whether they were going to really tie this huge thing of gold or this huge thing of silver. And, you know, Zechariah asked, I just made this whole story up in my mind. But... Could have happened that way. You know, the Lord tends to use these, these situations. So he gives this prophecy to him, and he tells him to make a crown out of these, this gold and silver and set it on Joshua the high priest's head. Now, we've talked about Joshua before, right? We looked in chapter 3, when, and, and the end of chapter 2, beginning in chapter 3, and all of chapter 3, when Joshua was, Zechariah was told to tell Joshua Man, your clothes are disgusting. And he had this vision of Joshua's clothes just being full, just dirty rags. And, and how Jesus said, take those clothes off of him and I'm going to give him beautiful clothes, like clean white clothes. And he even gave him a crown at that point. But that was a vision. Okay, so, and we talked about this whole, that whole chapter was, was preparing Joshua for ministry and how it applied to our lives, preparing us for ministry. Because each and every one of you guys has ministry in front of you. You guys have people that you need to minister to and the Lord to minister to and that that chapter was a great lesson for us. So we've seen Joshua before. We've seen him getting prepared for ministry before, but now we see this different thing. We see a real crown, an elaborate crown, crown elaborate clown. That's that's a strange <laughs> way to think, but Yes, elaborate crown and set it on his head. And this is bizarre. And you might not see it because we're, you know, <clears throat> Americans from America. 
most of us. And so when we hear that term, it doesn't strike us as odd or bizarre. But for the Jewish mind, this would have been totally crazy because they knew Joshua was the high priest and you never put a crown on a high priest because a crown was for a king, a ruler. And so what's going on here is just out of control. Just out of control. I mean, the Jews would have been like, Zechariah, you have gone too far. I don't know what you're talking about. Because, see, they had read their Bibles, and they had read Second Chronicles chapter 26. And the one guy, see, God had separated out the kingly line and ministry from the priestly line and ministry, and the kings were supposed to come from the tribe of Judah. There you go. And the, the priests were supposed to come from the line of Levi. So you had these two separate whole different tribes, like different families within the whole children of Israel, and they didn't, no one was able to do both jobs, and it was designed by God that way. And there was one guy, though, that did, and it was King Uzziah. And Uzziah, you know, he, he had a heart, and this is in Second Chronicles, you can go back and read it, chapter 26, he, he wanted to act as the priest, too, and he, he put on some priestly garments, and he went into the temple, and he's like, ah, I'm going to be the priest, let's go! And the people... We're like, what's going on? And God was not very happy. So it didn't work out too well for him. He was cursed with leprosy and ended up dying. Bummer. The whole reason is because man can't do this. No man can do this. Have, have royal, priest, royal kingly responsibilities and yet priestly responsibilities and do them both at the same time. It's impossible. No one could lead the people to do God's will and provide for their failings and shortcomings at the same time. That's, that's what we're seeing here. The, the king ministry was, was to lead the people and say, this is the way to go, here's the standard, here's what we've got to do, what we've got to think, what we've got to say. And the priest would come alongside and would... would care for their people and their shortcomings and provide for them when they, when they messed up. They would offer sacrifices and, and cover over their sin. And these two things are so wildly different that they couldn't be done as one person. So, a king leads them to do what's right, shows an example, gives directions, sets forth a plan, leads them into battle. That's that, that's that identity. And then the priest provides resources needed to stand before the king, the resources needed to do what's right. All right, so now let's look at verse 12. We find out what's going on here. Why did God ask Zechariah to put a crown on Joshua's head? Verse 12, Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. So God says, check out what this picture is. Okay, I'm, I got a prophecy. I want you to make the crown, put it on his head. It's supposed to be a picture a, a, uh, that a man will eventually hold both of these offices at the same time. As king and priest, it's a prophecy. Of course, we know that to be Jesus, right? Man, this book, Zechariah, is all about Jesus. Have you noticed that? I think in every single Bible study, we've talked about Jesus, which is what we're supposed to do, because 
Oh, so much, so good. But anyway, so many great prophecies here. You can talk to your Jewish friends about it. It's just awesome. But this here is a picture, and this again, this would have been unbelievably um, crazy to the Jewish people hearing it because they knew it was impossible, and so they're getting this vision that this is going to be a supernatural guy that comes and, and holds both these things, and his name will be the branch. It says. Now we've we've seen this before. Who, who was not here when we studied the branch part, when we talked about the branch before? Okay, we got a couple. So, the branch is a common term used for Jesus in the Old Testament. It's actually used like six to eight times in the Old Testament. The Messiah is given the name of the branch, and we studied that in depth, and it was actually pretty crazy, because at the beginning I'm like, that's a terrible name for someone. Why would you name someone a branch? That doesn't work to my American 32-year-old brain. Why? I don't want my name to be a branch. Well... But it works great for Jesus because, and, and I just, and what we said before, and this, is, this was great, was we turned to John 15 and we are like, man, I just wish there was a part in the Bible where Jesus told us about some sort of branch and growing and vines and all that, how this all related together. And we turned to John 15 and we read it and we saw that that's exactly what Jesus is. He's the branch, he's the vine that we abide in. And so we... Uh, we, we studied that, and we see it come back here, that his name is the branch. And so, long story short, that name represents his character and his mission and his job, which is to bring growth and fruitfulness. That's, the, that's his character. That's why he's called the branch. I mean, God could have called him, uh, what's something else that's fruitful? The garden. I don't know, the plant. Well, it is. He does call him the plant that springs out of dry ground. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think in my mind on the fly of something that's, that's fruitful. But branches are pretty much it. That's where fruit comes from. So anyway, it's a good name, I guess. <laughs> Couldn't have much done, done much better. <laughs> so that's, it, it, it bears his character. He, he brings growth and he's fruitful. Now, now when you're reading the Hebrew, because I know you guys all do when you go home, um, you, you get out your Hebrew text and you're like, now I'm going to find out if the pastor really understands what he's talking about. Well, you'll find out. It's really cool here. And, of course, you're reading right to left. So the word on the right is uh, that's the opposite of, of English and every other language, normal language. But um, you go right to left. So the first word is branch. And it's, it's, like his, and it's, it's in the way that says his name is branch. So it's saying that's what his name is. Branch, fruitful, you know, growth, this, that's that word, okay? And then the next word is the same word, but it's a verb. So his name is Branch and he will branch. That's what it's actually saying in Hebrew. So his name is a fruitful guy that's going to be growing, and what he's going to do is he's going to bring fruitfulness and growth. And I just, when I read, when I looked at that in the Hebrew, I was like, wow, that's really cool. That's a cool way to put it. Like, if, if my name was, uh, you know, if Sean was a verb, he's like, my name is Sean, and I'm going to Sean all over this place, you know? <laughs> it's like, you have a crazy idea of what that means, but, but for him, we do have an idea. You know, he's just, he brings, he brings growth and faithfulness wherever he grows. And that's why we don't have to worry about church growth plans and, and what we're supposed to do to, to cause fruitfulness in each other's lives. Because wherever Jesus is, that stuff just naturally happens. And you can look at a church and say, what makes this church successful? 
Versus why is that church dying and, and suffocating and it seems like no fruit is in that church. Everyone's crabby and ah. What, what's the difference? And I can guarantee you one of them has a focus and a dependency on the branch. And the other is not. On Jesus. One is abiding in Christ. One is just hanging out with Jesus. Just inviting Jesus everywhere they go and spending time with him. Reading their Bibles. And the other... They think they have it under control. They think that they're going to be a good church because they come to a church building that has a specific name on it. And see, we, we could go two different paths, you and me, and White Flag Calvary. We can go the path of being like, we're going to be the cool people, and we're going to get it right, and we're going to figure stuff out. Or we can go the path of saying, I just want to spend time with Jesus. I just want to read my Bible, and I'm going to read my Bible. I really don't care what all you guys do. I mean, I do. I'm just saying that facetiously. But I'm going to read my Bible. Like, last night as I was going to sleep, uh, we're going to see at the end of this that we go into Matthew. I listened to the whole book of Matthew last night, and it was long. But, man, I just felt so, like, close to the Lord, and I just felt like I was just abiding in Him. Now, I know that that will produce fruit in my life. It will produce fruit in my life. I don't know when that fruit will happen. I don't get to decide when a big apple drops off my arm. That's not up for me to decide. But I know that His Spirit will use that time in the Bible to produce fruit in my life. So, His name is the branch, and He will branch out. You know, it's funny because they didn't say His name is the fence. His name isn't the wall. It, he brings growth. He doesn't bring restrictions into your life. Restrictions are not from the Lord. You know, some people live their life with all these restrictions. I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to smoke, and I'm not going to chew, and I'm not going to hang out with people who do. You guys heard that? And my grandma used to say that. <laughs> Don't smoke, drink, or chew, or hang with people that do. And I don't think you should smoke or drink or chew or any of the, whatever. I, those are gross. But, but Jesus doesn't come to bring limitations. And the, so many times the church says they'll set up a limitation, and it's a good limitation. But by setting up a limitation doesn't make you a good person. It doesn't bring growth. You know, we grow up to the Lord. We don't, we don't set up boundaries on the outside. You don't have to worry about going out here when you're going up all the time. You know, when you're, when you're just drawing close to the Lord, you don't have to worry about all these limitations. And, you see, he came to bring this growth and fruitfulness. So in John 10.10, 10, there's this great verse that says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and kill, and destroy. You guys know that. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So in other words, Jesus, hanging out with him and doing the things of God and spending time with the, the Lord brings you the most abundance that a life can have. Everything, all the joy and happiness that your heart can contain will be poured into your heart as you just spend time with the Lord. There's no limitations. He didn't come to bring, I, didn't, I came that they may have life and, and all kinds of rules and limitations and restrictions. That's not what he says. He, he came to bring an abundant life. And, and so many times, you know, people will say, like, 
I have a real problem with the church because they don't want me to have any fun. They don't, I, I, I want it, man. I got to hit the party, man. I got to be at the club. <laughs> and uh, and I, it really throws them for a loop when you say, bro, I go to every club I want to. I smoke as much as I want. I drink as much as I want. And they're like, I've never seen you drink before. It's like, yeah, I just really don't want to. <laughs> I could. Would Jesus abandon me if I had a drink? No, not at all. Did Jesus stand at the front of the door when you walk into the club? Maybe. No, I don't know. <laughs> no, he does. he's with you. He's with you. And it's, it has nothing to do with where you go or where you're at or what you're doing. It's that he, when you're with him, you have an abundant life. And you don't feel this inner need. The problem is when you have an inner need, I have to be there. I have to be doing this fun thing or my life is not complete. I have to be taking of this substance or, or whatever the, your advice is. Whatever it is, it's because the heart isn't drinking deeply of the abundant life of Jesus. And that's why whenever I'm tempted... Whenever I'm tempted, I know what I need to do is just open my Bible and start reading. Because that helps me to drink deeply of his abundant life. And, And then those temptations, do they go away right away? No. Do I somehow get magic powers of strength to avoid them? No. But, over time, my desire for those things fades away. Because I'm tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And so, you know, he didn't come to start an organized religion, an organization called the church that creates people who try to grow and be fruitful. His life actually just creates this all by himself. He's really good at making the church all by himself, without any of us. He could do it, and he does do it. His life creates growth. His life creates faithfulness. It's even his name, the branch. His life is just a branch, creating, creating abundance and faithfulness and growth wherever he's invited. So we say, I need more growth and I need more faithfulness. You say that in your life, man, I just need to grow in the Lord. I just need more faithfulness. What do I have to do? Nothing. Those are, you can't do those things. But you can abide in the vine, and he will do those things on you. Okay, so we beat that horse dead. Verse 13. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. Very practically speaking, what he's talking about is that the temple would be finished, that they would... They would um, he's prophesying that Joshua would serve as the high priest in the rebuilt temple in that time. Second application is that Jesus will also serve in a temple. He will live in a temple. He will actually be in a temple. And it's not talking about 2,000 years ago, but there will be a rebuilt temple. Jesus will come back and he will live and rule and reign from Jerusalem 
in that temple. And a really cool thing, for a thousand years, this will happen. That's one of the promises, is that he will rule and reign here on the earth. Now, this is cool, because during that thousand years, what are you and I going to be doing? Because we get raptured up before that. We go up into heaven. We're hanging out. But we come back with him, it says. And then he comes back riding on a white horse, and we're all with him. Woo-hoo! And uh, he sets up his kingdom, and, you know, there's a little tiny war right there. But everyone kind of gathers up, and, and, and he, he establishes this new temple in Jerusalem, and it says he's going to build it himself. You and I aren't going to help him. He's just going to build a temple in that day. And he's going to live there in that temple. And in fact, everyone in the world comes to see him in that temple at that time. And in fact, during that thousand years, what it says, this is really cool, is that once a year, every family in the world has to go visit Jesus and, and say hi to him. And, and no matter where you live, it could be in Tijuana, you have to go to Jerusalem once a year. Now, maybe that'll be our job since we'll have glorified bodies to fly people to Jerusalem. I don't know. That'd be cool. I don't know. But, but everyone will need to go. And it says, or else there'll be a consequence if you don't go. You know what that consequence is? No rain would fall on your land. No rain would fall on your land. Now, there's a major application for us right there. Because if we're not consistently going to the Lord to visit him, hang out with him, what happens to us spiritually? We become dry. We start to be living in a, in a drought. And it's like, man, when you don't spend time with the Lord, this drought happens. I don't know, I'm on a rabbit trail of all rabbit trails right there. Okay, he's going to build the temple. That's where we're at. Um, so the, that was the second application is that future temple. The third application is, is he's talking about you and me and the church. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. So here's a prophecy in Zechariah of you. You. And Jesus saying, He shall build, God saying, He shall build the temple of the Lord. And He's talking about you. He's going to build you up. Is it your job to try to build yourself up? No. It is Jesus who does the work of building us up. Do you not know that you're the temple? And then in 1 Corinthians 3.17, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are? You're the temple that he's talking about here. Again, in 1 Corinthians 6.19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You're not your own. So what he's talking about here you know, is, is God is very invested in building you because you're his home. I'm, I'm concerned with my home. <laughs> this week I had a family staying with me and they had a little boy and he got out of a diaper. Ugh. And, and he, he made a mess upstairs. Not the easy to clean up mess. The hard to clean up mess. And it was bad. Oh, I don't like when my temple gets messed up. I had to go get the carpet cleaner, and I was out there, and I was scrubbing it on. And how much does the Lord, it says, if anyone defiles his temple, God will destroy him. That would have been like me saying, child, out of my house. Get out of here, you defiled my carpet. You know? 
<laughs> I just, that's what the Lord says here. So, anyway. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You know, God's heart in all of this, the reason why he's building his temple is because he, he wants to live somewhere. And so the craziest thing is it's not a temple made of stone. It's not a temple made of bricks anymore. It's a temple of a human heart. And he loves making home improvements in there. He likes working on it and, and causing growth and causing righteousness. But, you know, it's his. It's his place to work on. Sometimes I get really frustrated when the Lord is doing construction in my heart and I'm not in the mood. You ever not in the mood for God to do something in your heart? All the time, right? It's just like, today is not the day for this to be happening right now. And, uh, and, and it's in those times where I just need to trust the Lord that he's doing something deep in my heart and it's going to be because he wants to. So the work, the, the work of Jesus is by changing the, the way that the ministry of the temple happened, you know, from the, the, the temple in Jerusalem to every human heart. It, from an outward work of men's hands to an inward work of God and his spirit. Uh, and then it says here, the next phrase is, and he shall bear the glory. That word in Hebrew is, the, the glory shall be he, like set upon him. Or the reason why it's glorious is because it's set upon him. He is the foundation. He's the reason why there is glory. The, the reason why it's being built on him. He's the reason why it's glorious. And it's all for his glory. He's the reason why this building isn't shaken. And why it works is because he's the foundation. Without him, it all crumbles. And that's what this shows me, this verse. When I, when I let the day go by, without Jesus, everything crumbles. And, and when I attack a problem without Jesus, it just doesn't work. Even if I'm successful. This is the thing that we have to get. Even, okay, let's say you're really super smart. And you attack a problem and you get the right answer, you get the right solution. The thing is, it has no glory. It has no glory. It has no glory because Jesus wasn't involved in it. That's why smart people have a really hard time serving the Lord and glorifying the Lord. Because they depend, they, they want to receive some of that glory themselves. And God says, I bear the glory. It only is glorious if it's built on top of me. And that's, that blows my mind. God isn't wanting you to figure things out. He doesn't care if you get the right answer to the question. He cares that you're building it on top of him. Because guess what? When you're just spending time with him, any answer you pick is right. He can make it right. He's magic like that. He can make it work because he takes what you offer and he creates glory out of it. If glory is given to it, it naturally will be glorious. And this is this goes so this flies in the face of psychological thinking that says we need to be really skilled at doing this and we need to to 
be smart about how we do things and strategic. And yes, there's a place for those things in life and business. But if any of those things are above Jesus, you've just lost the glory. There, there will be no glory. And glory is another way, the way I think of glory and the way that helps me is I think of weight, weightiness. A cotton candy versus a steak. I would always pick the steak. That's glory. You know, if Albert, let's take Albert Einstein. If Albert Einstein was a believer, I don't know if Albert Einstein was a believer, he said some weird things. But if he was a believer, or if he was not a believer, let's say he wasn't a believer, no matter how smart he was and how many people's lives he saved and how much he accomplished, when you see it from heavens, from the eternal viewpoint, you're going to say, man, this, this little homemaking wife over here that lived every day in just humility and faith, hers will shine bright as a star. And his, if he's not even a believer, it won't even be there. None of it, nothing he does will matter. But then there'll be two believers, and one was really super smart, and they trusted in their wisdom and their resources, and, and they're just going to fall by the wayside of the one who just trusted. Just a, a, with humility and faith, trusted the Lord. So, without him it all crumbles. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, it says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building, According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So all that says, what I just spent ten minutes saying, Jesus is way more better communicator than I am. Way more better communicator. Jesus is way more better. See, I'm a living picture of that that this is real. You just ask my wife. <laughs> the next phrase there is, and he shall sit on his, he shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. So here, God is just hammering the fact that this is going to be a king and a priest at the same time. And you guys don't even understand how crazy that is. A king and a priest, a priest ruling? No way, people would say. But here God says, yes way. It's going to happen. And he will be able to do it. In fact, it will just be a peaceful union between the two, he says. A council of peace shall be between them both. The, the two offices of king and priest, it says they will, they will counsel together and there will be peace. They're not going to be arguing, saying, king, do this. And priest, I've got to help him. And king, oh, it's not going to be this big fight. It's just going to work. He will say, do this as a king, and all the people will be able to do it. That's what this is prophesying. And when Jesus comes, he will say, we're going to do this today, and all the people will be able to do it. Because Jesus enables them. He serves both, both of them. Now look at verse 14. Now, the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord for Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. So, in this, in this prophecy, he says, put that crown on Joshua's head and then take it off real quick because it's not really for him. 
It's not for him. We're going to set it up as a memorial. This is just a prophecy. I want you to be looking ahead. It's only for Jesus. And then verse 15, it says, Even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So the restoration that he's doing will be complete, and Jesus will make sure of that. As we're doing a restoration project, we see Jesus does a full work. Now, I want you guys to see something really cool, okay? So we have Jesus as this priest-king guy, okay? Well, the book of Matthew shows the unity of the king and the priest roles that Jesus fulfills. So we're going to read the entire book of... No, we're not going to do that right now. But you guys should, this week, go read the entire book of Matthew or listen to it on tape. I'm going to point out some things that I want you to to notice because the book of Matthew is divided into two big sections. One is about Jesus the king. And then that second one is about Jesus the priest, and it fits so well. The book of Matthew is like a fulfillment of everything that we just read. And so many times as you're reading through the book of Matthew, you're going to see in, the, in your center margin notes, you're going to see Zechariah 6.13, Zechariah 6.12. And these verses about him being a king priest, it's going to come back, okay? So look at these couple things. First of all, the two sections are divided by these words, from that time. Forward. So in Matthew 4.17 and in Matthew 16.21, you have two big sections there. From that time forward, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then the section, section says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go down to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. So first you have his kingly ministry. That he's repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you'll have this all through that section. And then the second time, it's his priestly duties. What he does as a priest to make you right with God. That he must suffer and die on the cross. And you're going to see this as you read it. So there's two titles that, are, that go with the two divisions. Number one, in the first section, you'll see son of David all throughout there. And in the second section, you'll see son of Abraham. So son of David, David was a king, the greatest king in Israel. So it, And God promised that the king would always be from the line of David, and Jesus was a son of David. And so he is the son of David, prophesied as the king. And then you have Abraham, which speaks of the offering made on the Mount Moriah, where, where Abraham was making a sacrifice to the Lord in order to get right with the Lord. And it was a priestly ministry. Also, Abraham had a conversation with a little guy named Melchizedek. You remember that? And so Abraham had a, had a relationship with Melchizedek. And so the priest, see, Jesus wasn't from the line of Levi, right? He was only from Judah. And so he's not a priest according to the line of, of the Levites. He's, he's from a different order, which is the order of Melchizedek. And that's explained in the book of Hebrews. We've studied that on our men's study this Saturday, actually, uh, briefly. And uh, it was good. So... Both sections, these big sections of Matthew, start with a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Isn't that weird? Matthew just, like, at the beginning of each of these big two sections, he said, this is my beloved son. And then on the Mount of, that was at the baptism, and then at the Mount of Transfiguration, he tells Peter again, this is my beloved son, listen to him. It's pretty cool. And then, both sections close with a confession. The first one is from Peter, a Jew, where Jews... Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter's like, you're the Messiah. And then the second one was a centurion saying, you are the Messiah. Now, the crazy thing is the first one was from a Jew. The second one was for a Gentile. 
Jesus was king of the Jews, but he serves as a priest for all men. Very interesting. He's also king of everyone else. So, and then there's a threefold temptation and triumph of the king in Matthew chapter 4. And then there's a threefold agony and triumph of the priest in chapter 26. I like these things. The symmetry of the Bible and the, and the word. So this, I just wanted to give you guys. You know, Jesus, what this says to me is that Jesus takes care of us in every way that we need taken care of. Sometimes we need a king to lead us in triumph. Basically always. And he, he fulfills that role for us. Sometimes we need a priest. Someone that we just messed up and we need someone to make it right. Because we can't do it ourselves. And a priest does that for us. He always does that. Now, turn with me. Last, the last thing we're going to talk about. Revelation chapter 1. You always have to go to Revelation. You're, always, you're saying, why do you always go to the book of Revelation? Well, because it's the coolest book of life. It ties so many things together. I mean, we've spent a lot of time in Revelation during our study here of, uh, in Zechariah because it ties so many things together. Now, this one is just going to blow your mind. Okay? We have been saying this whole time, and this is like the, the, this is the you know, movie twist at the end of the movie that's just going to, you're going to be like, oh, no way! And like when you're watching, what's his name that made the, the village and... Uh, Six Sense, that guy. What's that guy's name? M. Night Shyamalan. M. Night Shyamalan, yeah. He always has a twist, you know, in his movies. Well, this one, this is like that, okay? So I tried to be like, this is like the M. Night Shyamalan Bible study. Look at Revelation 1.5. He says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us, so remember that. It's because he loves us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. It's a pretty loving thing to do. All right. Now, verse six. And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What? All this time we've been studying Jesus, that Jesus was the one who fulfilled all these ministries. And it's true. Jesus does fulfill all these ministries. But now, he says, he has made us, every single believer, a king and a priest with him. Whoa. This just blows my mind. We are kings. We are God's royalty. This speaks of privilege and status and authority. And we are priests, so we're God's special servants you know, we represent God to man and man to God. We offer sacrifices unto him and we're, we have privileged access to the presence of God. And all of this is because he loved us. He's like, this is what's happening. Jesus is like, it's so good to be me. I just have to spread the love. Because he says it's because he loved us and washed us in his own blood. So not only does he invite us into relationship with him, but he invites us to share in his work. In his jobs. These are his two jobs, king and priest, that no one else could do and no human could do, but he invites you and me to share with him in what he's doing. That's just amazing to me. Just amazing. 
He spreads love. As kings, you know, well, don't need to talk about that. I'm going to read one quick thing. A few years ago, an angry man rushed through uh, this museum in Amsterdam and, until he reached Rembrandt's famous painting, Night, Wh- Night Watch. And he took out a knife and slashed it repeatedly before he could be stopped. A short time later, a distraught, hostile man slipped into St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome with a hammer and began to smash Michelangelo's beautiful sculpture, the Pieta. Two cherished works of art were severely damaged. But what did the officials do? Did they throw them out and forget about them? Absolutely not. Using the best experts who worked with the uttermost care and precision, they made every effort to restore the treasures. You know, you may think, like, God may be doing a lot in this world, but he cannot use me right now to help him with that. I, I can't be a king or a priest right now. I've, done, I've gone too far, and I doubt that God is interested in using me to help him with this work he's doing. And I just, I look at this and, I, and that story, and I just think God has big plans for you. He, he has plans to make you thrive as a king and a priest for him. And it has nothing to do with you. And yeah, you may have had a guy come in and just mess you up with a hammer. And you'd be, look at me now. I don't even have arms. <laughs> or, or, you know, like you may feel like your life is that painting that's just got jacked up. And it wasn't even your fault, maybe. You're just jacked up now. And, you, and, and God looks at that and he's like, it's no problem. I can do the work. I'm an awesome repair artist. I'm an awesome restoration God. You know, we just believe in him, we wait upon him, we call upon him, we trust him, and then we watch him just build us up as we spend time in him. Amen? Amen. All right, Jesus, Lord, we're, we're a bunch of messed up sculptures of weird three-armed things that can't even, I don't, we're just useless in our own minds sometimes, Lord, and... Um, Lord, I pray you'd save us from not thinking, not believing in, in what you're going to do in, in our rightful place as a king and a priest before you serving you, Lord. And Lord, I also pray against the other side where we're so prideful that we think we are a king and a priest in our own abilities. Lord, I pray you'd forgive us for any, either one of those. Lord, the false humility... Lord God, just just down in the dumps and who am I and how can I be used by God? And also, Lord, the pride of saying, I'm so good, I could be used, you know, I'm, I'm awesome. Lord, I, got, I pray that we would just abide with you and see you do great things in our life, Lord. We just accept, Lord, that you've made us kings and you've made us priests. And Lord, we feel like we may be terrible at those jobs right now, but... That's where we're at, because you've loved us so much. So we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.